Welcome, welcome, welcome to Armchair Expert, Experts on Expert. I'm Dak Shepard, and I'm joined in abstentia and with great love, Monica Padman. Today we have, as anyone that knows Monica and I will know, the perfect guest, an Olympian. Alexi Pappas is a Greek-American Olympic athlete, a writer, actress, and filmmaker. Alexi competed in the Rio Olympics, setting a national record in the 10K with a time of 31.36. She has a new book out called Bravery, Chasing Dreams, Befriending Pain, and Other Big Ideas. Very fascinating look at what the post-Olympic experience is like. So please enjoy Alexi Pappas. He's an armchair Man, so we're tardy. So, so sorry. Sorry, sorry, sorry. It's okay. We just talked about all your secrets. Oh, (laughs) I I know them all. I want to know if you know some of my secrets that I don't know. Probably now. I know your preference in jellies and (laughs) that you don't. That I don't bathe frequently. Did he tell you that? All those things. Mm. I'm going to appeal to your sense of compassion. The delay was I had forgot to shoot up all my antibiotics into my sexy port. And so that takes a while. And I apologize. It slipped my mind. That would be like if I forgot to feed my dog, I would have to do it. There are things that you have to do. (laughs) And it takes time, actually, because my dog is a pug. And we feed our freeze-dried raw food, and you have to, like, soak it for a while. And it, every time she cries while it's soaking, as if she's not going to get fed. Can I make a suggestion, a hack, per se? Please. What's her name? Bernini. So I would lob off Bernini's food at night. I'd put it in the dish, and then I'd put it in the fridge at night. And then when you wake up, we're thawed. That's actually really smart. So it's like the overnight oats of dog right. food. Right? Because it's soaking. Well, and you know why that's smart is because if we left it out, she would know and she would think it's time to eat and she would smell it, I think. Yeah. Is she around? Can I see her? I can get her. No, don't get her. But if she was like at your feet, I would want you to lift her up and show me. You said we. Who's we? You've already shown your cards. Okay. I live in a cabin in Woodland Hills and I live with my husband and creative partner, Jeremy, and with Bernini, our... Loyal pug daughter, and you will meet her. (laughs) Pug daughter. There's a way to make that Monica one word, right? Because there's a GH in daughter, and then you got a G in pug. Mm, uh, Dogder. Dogder. That's your dogder. That's cute, yeah. This dogder. How long have you lived in L.A.? We moved here after South by 2019, when before that I was living in Mammoth Lakes, which is where most people go there to ski Okay, just you get this for two seconds because she's not going to be very. This is Bernini. Oh, Oh my God. Rob, snap a pic of this. Yeah, Rob, get a nice photo. Although, you know, you really got to light her. She's so black that you need like a spotlight on her to see the features. We'll try to shine a light on her for a second. Oh, good. This is really becoming a thing. Oh, my God. She's so cute. She's a pug? Oh, So she's full grown. She was a runt. And she never grew... Bigger than about 10 to 12 pounds. That's, oh. This is her. Oh, my God. <laughs> she is but really so, cute. Hi. 
okay, well, we'll put her away, but she's yeah. thrilled to meet you. She's lean. She doesn't have those back ripples I'm used to on pugs. Yeah, she's like a football player at the dog park where she, <laughs> she like will play with the big dogs. She runs, even though I am a runner, that has been a job of mine. I never forced my child into the sport. She found it on her own. Yeah. (laughs) I sound like a crazy person who's like my daughter. (laughs) My dog is my daughter. So I lived in Mammoth for about three years after the Olympics. And prior to that, I was in Eugene, Oregon, which is like the mecca of distance running. Oh, it is because because of Nike and University of Oregon. Yep. Yep. So Eugene is nicknamed Tracktown USA. That's Whoa. like its actual nickname. Oh. I want to give a shout out to a hotel there, the Inn at the Fifth. Did you ever go there? I know the Inn at the Fifth. That's the nice hotel in Eugene, I think. We made a movie there, Tracktown, and we put Rachel Dratch up in the Inn at the Fifth. And that was our like, oh. our great gesture, you know? <laughs> yeah, your generous gesture. When did you go there? Well, my mother lives in Oregon, so we often drive up there, I don't know, a couple times a year. And sometimes, in the winter in particular, if we're going up for Christmas because the Inn at the Fifth is decorated really pretty, and there's that really neat French restaurant right at the bottom that's delish. And so we, instead of driving straight to my mom's, we'll stop there for the night, and then we'll have a French meal, and we'll maybe go buy some toys. And then we get back on the road and end up in, uh, used to be Hood River the next morning. That's awesome. Did you go to University of Oregon? So I did a fifth year there, which is like your final year of college. I did undergrad in New Hampshire at Dartmouth. Very elite. Mm. Unifile. We like that. Dartmouth was like a big summer camp. And then I had this one, like two seasons of eligibility left. And even though I was like the worst on my running team at Dartmouth when I got there and was very into improv comedy, I became very good at running during my time there. And I had this two seasons of eligibility and it was like a very difficult decision because I thought I was going to go pursue the arts, pursue like poetry and more wherever improv leads. But I had this window to run. And so I went to Oregon because that was the best school to run at. And it opened up the window to go to the Olympics. Oh, so this is interesting. So then it's not that, or at least I'm now assuming you weren't on an Olympic track per se when you went to college. No. And I think that's important to say, because even though I think every kid kind of dreams of the Olympics to some extent, like I did. Oh, Monica's a big, (laughs) she really had had fantasies of grandeur at the Olympics. They were of grandeur because I was never, ever, ever going to make it there. But God, it's so alluring, the Olympics. Well, so Monica, if you did go to the Olympics, what would it be? Gymnastics was the dream. But yeah. I mean, look, in retrospect, I think I dodged a bullet, not saying that I would ever have been able to do it. But She won't brag for herself, but we took the 23andMe, and she has the elite (laughs) muscle uh, gene, so probably could have done it. (laughs) (laughs) No, I couldn't have, but especially with gymnastics, part of the reason I couldn't do it is because I started way too late. I started at eight, (laughs) and you have to start at like four to be in that category, and God, your whole life is that. But you didn't have that. That's so interesting. Yes, because in gymnastics at eight, you're middle-aged. Yes. And in running, and particularly female distance running, you don't peak until you're like, some people say like 34, but it's certainly like later in your 20s. And for me, I think sports were always in my life. My dad raised us as like a single dad. 
after my mom passed away. And I think this was like the only way he knew how to teach us, teach my brother and me to fall down and definitely get back up. Mm -hmm. So we were in tons of sports. He brought us to watch the Olympics in 96. (gasps) In Atlanta. In Atlanta. And I watched a guy run the marathon that later became one of my Olympic coaches. So it was like, I didn't know that obviously at the time. But so it was in the back of my head, but I was very into performing in another way, which was like the improv theater, the writing. And that's what I did at Dartmouth when I was like the worst on the team, but still on the team. So really quick, you ran in high school, I presume. So I ran freshman, sophomore year of high school, and I was very good at it, but I did not like it because running. Because it's miserable. Because it's painful. Yes. (laughs) It hurts for me just like it hurts for you. Like, I'll just say it. It just, it does. But the thing that makes it fun is when you have people to run with, because it's a very social sport. And my high school team was just like, the coaches were not super, I mean, my coach was like actually an alcoholic and had a lot of things going on. And he wanted us to just run and not do any of the other activities. And the other activities were like, whatever you do, student government, like dating, other sports, yeah, dances, like all the things. And I wasn't ready to quit every other activity and just run as a 15-year-old. And so I had this ultimatum to either quit everything and just run, which I was good at but didn't love, or not run. And so I got like de facto kicked off my team in high school Mm. twice. And so I didn't run at all junior and senior year of high school. And I played soccer and did all the things I wanted to do and felt like I was enjoying but felt upset because I wanted to be able to like find joy in running. I just wasn't ready to be like pushed into it. But the positive outcome of that was that I went through like puberty in a really normal way. And, you know, you had your I, periods in a normal scheduled yeah. fashion. Yeah. Good job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some of those athletes, right. They won't have a period for yeah. years. Some people don't have them until like late in their twenties or really, really delayed because they're training so hard at like age 16, 17, 18. And so I wasn't training hard. It didn't feel like really a choice that I made. I wish that like development was more built into the high school running environment. Prioritized a bit, yeah. Really quick, before we move on, I'm curious, is there a physiological answer for the late onset of the peak performance for female runners? Is there like some kind of chemical explanation or physiological explanation? I think it's just that like the female athlete is much more capable than like the kid athlete. Same probably with the male athlete and the little boy athlete. And let's just say we become our full female athlete selves when we're like 20 years old or something. And then you can really begin training Mm -hmm. at a level that would add up eventually to your peak. I just came up with this idea. I want to see if you dig it at all. If ever there was a sport that was so reliant on the frontal lobe, it would have to be long distance running because the entire thing is projecting into the future and pushing yourself currently for a reward that is so delayed. And we do know that human brains don't develop that frontal lobe fully until they're out of high school. Okay, wait, so explain this more to me. So that means that once you develop the frontal lobe, you can like participate more in goals that have delayed 
gratification. Yeah, so most of your brain is occupied with serving its immediate desires and needs. You have a ton of chemicals in there, right? Your pleasure reward system's telling you to go eat this. And then the frontal lobe's the part of your brain that is the last to develop in our last stage of evolution. And it's why kids make terrible decisions. They make like, oh, I'm gonna go drive this car drunk because it's gonna be awesome right now. And they're just not great at projecting into the future. So I feel like your sport in particular must rely most heavily on the frontal lobe. I never knew that. I never knew why my forehead was so big, <laughs> but it is. <laughs> I think that's true. I think that's true. And it is like a sport that's as mental as it is physical when you get into like the long, long distance running. I mean, those are races of attrition, right? It's not about yeah. the heroic sprint at the end as much as it's about hanging in there and being there at the end. Yeah. I want to earmark something about this for later in your story when we talk about starting to deal with depression and then what I would imagine your training is almost your worst enemy in that like you have conditioned yourself to ignore the signs of discomfort and you have put so much time into, yeah, this fucking sucks, but I'll get through it and there'll be something on the other side of it that that could end up being a terrible mechanism for addressing one's mental state at any given time. Yes, like particularly if the world sees you as some kind of like superhero, then you're not even allowed to, this is not true, but you feel that you're not allowed to experience vulnerabilities pain. and negative emotions. Yeah, or they always want to see you as like a, a superhero. And this is probably something that I created, but I've experienced this in physical and mental pain where I'll be in some kind of physical pain but still be able to run like 20 miles or 100 miles in a week and be told that there's no way I'm injured if I could do that workout. Ah. And I guess that's on me to understand that even though I have a high pain tolerance, it doesn't mean it's like good pain. Uh-oh. And there's like good pain and bad pain. <laughs> I'm just relating to you. As you see, I have this port in my arm and I've had three surgeries this year and I have a really high pain threshold. And the people that love me go like, just because you're not suffering from these injuries does not mean you should keep accumulating them. <laughs> yeah. That's a really delicate line. And that's where we rely on people to tell us certain boundaries, like objectively. Yeah. And that's why it helps to have like a mental health doctor say like, you are sick or your brain is injured. Just like it helps to have a coach or a doctor tell you like, your arm will not heal for two more months, so just chill even if you feel good. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it, about mental health is is it has this underbelly of shame, whereas if you broke your tibia running, you'd go, yeah, I don't feel embarrassed by that or shameful about that, it fucking broke, I push it too hard. But the other thing, you really need a doctor to say, you don't need to feel shame, you are sick and you need treatment. And I'm giving yes. you permission to not feel like it's a weakness. Yeah, and I think, Something that you and I would probably agree on is like, we like like having goals in our future, those things that we look forward to. And if we know the goal is fitness or we know the goal is whatever goal you're chasing, we can like zone in and chase that goal. But if someone were to tell us, actually, your goal should be health because you're not healthy, we would probably be able to shift focus and make that our goal. Yeah. It's just, if you don't know to recalibrate and shift your goal, then we won't. Yeah. My goal was make a lot of money and have people recognize me. And that ultimately didn't, it didn't feel great. <laughs> well, 
that feels like the equivalent of when I was chasing my own versions of outward accomplishment, right? Uh And for me, it came from a place, and I don't know if you both can relate, but I think I was driven by like an unhealthy drive to not be like what I thought my mother was. She took her own life. So I had a lot of association with that where I just like did, I want to be anything but that. Yeah, you were five, right? Your mother committed suicide when you were five years old. Yeah. And what I like about you is I saw you in an interview owning your resentment towards her. Tell us about that. I like that you admitted that. Well, it's so powerful. For me, it came from a place of the narrative I was kind of fed about her, about her mental health injury was that she was just so sick that she had to leave. Mm -hmm. And the things that I saw in the first few years of life, like I had four memories and three of them were just terrifying and awful, made me feel like if I ever felt the things that she felt, then my fate might be a foregone conclusion because of the narrative that I was fed and also of what I saw. How was her mental health explained to you? So when she was sick, like in the first few years of my life, she wasn't around because she was in and out of these just like drug rehab or mental health rehab. She just kept having episodes, including, I mean, I don't know how specific to be here whatever you're it's comfortable totally with we, you, yeah, yeah yeah well and also this comes from a place of like some of my audience are like 15 year old girls so i'm just like i'm very aware that there's like a version of this that i can say but unfortunately we are not huge in the 15 <laughs> demo we're trying to get there but i think we're definitely more college graduate demo exactly yeah. so i mean she was manic depressive so she would have these manic episodes when she was home and just experiencing someone who's like thinks like the toaster is talking to her and just screaming. Like all I could remember was like seeing her as this, like a Barbie doll where like you brush its hair too much, just like kind of crazy woman figure who could not handle her shit. And it made me really sad. So I didn't really resent her at that time because I was sad for her and it's hard to feel resentment towards someone you feel bad for, but it's also hard to look up to them. Well, let me just add, have you seen the ACE test you can take, childhood trauma tests? And if yeah. you have, you know, more than three of the 10, you're, you're likely to have some pretty predictable outcomes. And one of the main ones is if do you have a parent with mental health issues? So like what you experience is very, very traumatic. Yeah. And one time I saved her life because I walked in on her. She was like trying to like saw her arm off. And I walked in on that when I was like four and I didn't really understand what was going on, but she didn't want my help at that time. But I did it anyway, because we have an instinct where like blood is bad and like, we're going to do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, what was confusing was that she didn't seem to be in pain. Like she was very stoic and like, it was almost like she was like a concert violinist, like trying to like do something to herself. And so I was very confused about what that pain meant, but still got help because blood meant bad. I cannot imagine seeing that. That yeah, is, that's, that's really out traumatic. of a horror movie. Yeah, It was bad. I needed to make sense of it because my dad, I love him. I love him. He's amazing. He was single parent engineer type. So like not very, let's talk about it. <laughs> so he put us in sports. We didn't talk about it. And I think he thought that those memories would fade like a bruise fades, like it'll go away. Yeah. But I needed to make sense of it. And I think I did two things. Like one, wanted to be 
as opposite of her as I possibly could. So that meant happy, successful, accomplishing all of those things. In control of yourself. Yeah, exactly. And two, I think it meant that I needed to use my imagination because with the saw, the only other time you see someone using a saw in that way is like in Looney Tunes. And I tried to at least create for myself a circumstance where if the most unimaginably bad things were possible, like seeing something like that, which I'd only ever seen in cartoons, then maybe anything was also possible. So I think I became a little bit entitled or like, I was like, I'm special. And like, this is an awful thing, but also the best version of this is also possible. Uh huh. That takes so much strength to be able to turn that into a positive thing. Entitled, I don't think is. Well, here we go. We had a 30 minute debate about entitlement the other day. So you're kind of just walking into a previous. But it's, I mean, not to like really hit the nail on the head, but it's brave. It's brave to do that, to turn something so profoundly negative. Yeah, I'm relating to it in a different way. And I, I bet it's not the same, but I took those events that I knew were not normal or deserving. And what I really did is I said, because of this, I deserve something amazing. Yes. Because I've had to endure this, I almost have an excuse now. So you did something very productive, and mine was generally like chaos, addiction, but I felt very entitled to that because I had experienced the other thing. I felt like I was owed that. Yeah, I think it was the same mindset, just we made certain different decisions. And I didn't always make the productive decisions. Like yeah. Sometimes I would like sneak out and drink with boys under, you know, I did things like that. And I was like, well, this isn't as bad as killing myself. So it like, it isn't, I mean, and we're talking really, really frank here, but I honestly had like a very weird thing to compare myself to. And I did like often compare myself to it. And I think the thing that we find is that we want to chase that feeling of like satisfaction and we've done it. We've avoided the thing we wanted to avoid And you want to feel that final conclusion that you've definitely done it. And I chased that through a lot of outward accomplishment. And the thing is, is that I did get a lot of those outward accomplishments. To be driven by trauma is really potent. It's just also really unsustainable. Yeah. And do you think you also got really skilled at fantasy? Yeah. Like visualizing where you were going or how did it apply for you? Yeah. So like, I didn't want to be often where I was at. So I had this just very active, I was constantly planning where I would end up because I didn't like this. And so with no game plan, I would just sit and practice my interview with David Letterman, but I wasn't going to pursue acting or anything. I don't know why I was going to get there, but maybe that's universal. I don't know. But I do know that I was super preoccupied with this life I would at some point be occupying where I was really special, whether I was a novelist or I was a musician or something. I just was really active with (laughs) those fantasies. Yes. So that seems like a good thing. I did that too. And I think I also tried to fill this like gap of the mother role with other women, like obsessed with women. And like, for some reason, I seem to have fixated on women in comedy. And I don't know why, but I I thought about it. I have never said this out loud. So maybe it's going to make me sound kind of silly, but like I would read Amy Poehler's book or I would listen to it on audiobook on repeat. And it just to feel like she was 
talking to me and it was because I wanted to be, I don't know, like accepted by that person. And I think it's because women in comedy what reminded me of the closest thing to maybe what the best version of my mom could have been of someone who like had, I don't mean like a bipolar manic person. I just mean what I was perceiving in comedy was like highs and lows and honesty could have been the best version of her. And I've never said this out loud, so I don't know if it makes any sense. Yeah. No, it does. And I just, I was excited. I was pointing at Monica because she too had her own thing and her own fantasies derived by, I don't want to speak for you, but feelings of otherness and a similar fascination with Amy Poehler or. Yeah. I mean, comedy, it's so cliche, but it's the truth that you seek it out when you feel on the outside. I mean, that just seems to be a through line of all the comedians we know and talk to and stuff. Like at some point they felt. Don't you think we feel like observers? Perspective, exactly. Like we're observing everyone else because we're not on the inside of that circle. And our observation gives us this great ability to be critical in a funny way of that since we're not submerged in it. it. We think we're not in the water and we can point it out. (laughs) Yeah. Until you are, then it's... <laughs> yeah, then you're confused. <laughs> <laughs> right, like, until you are means when you are, like, a part of the game, you're not just on the sidelines. Yeah. Then what do you do? Do you accept yourself or do you watch yourself still playing the game while you're in it? <laughs> yeah, for me personally, it's been both, big time. Okay, so I'm so glad to hear this, this fantasy thing, because I want to go through getting to the Olympics, because the ride up is still so driven by how you will ultimately feel when you arrive. I'm guessing. So the ride up from Oregon to Rio is how many years? It's about three and a half years. And it's not that I wasn't training my very hardest until that point. Like I'm always somebody who tries my best. It's just that me trying my best didn't yield like world-class level results until this point. So it wasn't like I made a major shift. Yeah. I always took my dreams pretty seriously that I wanted to improve in whatever I was doing. It's just suddenly I was in a position where other people believed in me too, and I could formally commit to that goal. So I don't want to make it seem like this suddenly clicked on. It was just suddenly the goal came into view and it was just a much bigger goal. Did you have any panic? Like once it became more unreal, because I can't imagine that when you're at Dartmouth, it's not like that was a realistic goal that you'd be at the Olympics. But as it starts getting more realistic are you at all starting to get consumed with panic because it'd be easy for me to not panic about something i didn't think was possible but as soon as it became possible i think there'd be another layer of stress or anxiety yeah it felt almost because the timeline was more compressed like i needed to nail every rung on the ladder i was climbing and if i just grabbed and i got everyone i could pull it off yeah and the truth is that i did at that time yeah And it was because I do think that I thought that that accomplishment, which is objectively one of the greatest things you can accomplish, would make me feel that certain way. And I would never have shared that. But you know inside when you're chasing this external thing to solve an internal problem, I guess maybe you realize it later. Do you think what you were searching for, though, wasn't so much validation, but just security that you equated success with positive mental health? Like in in your brain, being successful meant being happy, which meant you were immune to the disease of your mother. Yeah, I think it was that. And I think it was also at that time, I didn't understand her. And so it was also a little bit of like a 
I can do this without you. Mm. The relationship with her has been so evolving, even though she's been dead from one of like, when she died, I thought she died of smoking because no one told me how she died and she smoked and this was the nineties. And so everyone was like, (laughs) smoking's bad. And I was like, she must've died of smoking because I didn't understand. (laughs) And then in seventh grade, I have a best friend too, Dax, and her name's Amanda. Um, (laughs) And I always call her my best friend, Amanda. And my best friend, Amanda, told me how she really died in seventh grade because there's this day where you had to write out these tombstones for people you knew to have died of smoking, like on cardboard. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my gosh. Um, Oh, my goodness. And everybody, well, Disney, because there was this rumor. (laughs) Nobody knew anyone to have died of smoking. Someone was like, he died of like lung cancer, so it must have been smoking. And I wrote my mom's name, and they printed that particular photograph in the yearbook. So I know I did this and didn't make it up. Yeah. She's in the yearbook. But my best friend told me that day, she was like, everybody knows this thing, and you don't know. (gasps) Oh, wow. She did it out of love, of course, and I'm glad I knew. Did you find that you were embarrassed? I was a little embarrassed. But I was mostly just mad at my mom because I didn't know why anyone would do that. And I also never told my dad that I knew because I've always been really protective of him. And I thought if he didn't tell me, there was a reason why he didn't tell me and we're okay despite this. So then I stopped visiting my mom's grave, which is like my only way to be like teen angst. I'm not talking to you anymore. Yeah. Oh my God. It's so fascinating. Yeah. That you continue to have a relationship as if she's alive in so many ways. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you stop visiting her. That's as bad as stop talking to your mom. Yeah. Stay tuned for more armchair expert. If you dare. We are supported by ZipRecruiter, Al ZipRecruiter. Recent data shows that out of all the female-owned businesses, it is estimated that one in three is owned by a mom. Ever wonder how these amazing moms and dads find time to hire for their businesses while juggling their families? With ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free only at ZipRecruiter.com DAX. CEO and founder Talia Goldstein is one such mompreneur. Besides being a mother of two, her personalized matchmaking company, 3-Day Rule, is constantly growing and she needs to hire several matchmakers a month. So she uses ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter's powerful technology helps her find people with the right experience and actively invites them to apply. And right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at this website, ZipRecruiter.com slash DAX. This special offer is only good at ZipRecruiter.com slash DAX. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. We are supported by Athletic Greens, the most comprehensive daily nutritional beverage I have ever tried. I travel with it. I'm currently traveling right now as I record this on an army base in California. And what did I bring? Socks, underwear, toothpaste, athletic greens. Gotta have it. It is the best way for me to stay balanced and have all of my nutritional needs met. With so many stressors, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits, busy schedules, poor sleep, exercise, stress, or simply not eating enough of the right foods. This is where Athletic Greens can help. One tasty scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients that all work together to fill in the nutritional gaps in your diet. And right now, Athletic Greens is doubling down on supporting your immune system. They are 
offering Arm Cherries a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packets with your first purchase. If you visit my link today, you'll basically never have to buy vitamin D again. So whether you're looking for peak performance or better health, covering your basis with Athletic Greens makes investing in your energy, immunity, and gut health each day simple, tasty, and efficient. Simply visit athleticgreens.com DAX and join health experts, athletes, and health-conscious go-getters around the world who make a daily commitment to their health every day. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com DAX and get your free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packets today. So then when I got towards closer to the Olympics, I still had this, I wasn't as like teen angsty about her and upset, but I definitely did not think we were friends. Uh And I still wanted to prove to myself and maybe a little bit to her, I guess it's mostly to yourself, that you've turned out okay. Uh And the Olympics felt like it would be that. Really quick, can I ask one question before we get to the Olympics? Anything. How would you describe your mental state between fifth year at Oregon and then the Olympics, did you find that you were just generally pretty content or were you wrestling with anything then? Because the drug works for a while, right? That's what we say in AA, like they work until they stop working. So I would imagine this is the period where that all works. Shoveling accomplishments in the hole is working. Yeah, I mean, I like directed and starred and co-wrote a movie at the same time that I was training for the Olympics. And so I was firing on all cylinders and was running 120 miles a week and going through the Sundance lab with this movie. Like I was like on and engaged and in. And the truth is that my post-Olympic depression was called a situational depression. And that's like where you're okay, you're okay. And then you really, really crash. So I wasn't in any kind of depression. I just think I was headed towards a very big one because of the way I was managing myself that the limits of a body physically seem to be well acknowledged and known but no one ever tells you because i've had those moments too where i'm like juggling 55 things and it feels awesome i fucking love it like if i'm dialed in all 16 hours i'm awake i love it but i don't really consider like oh well i couldn't run 30 miles a day i know my body wouldn't allow that and maybe it's worth evaluating whether you mentally can handle that much stimuli. Well, how do you feel about it? Those times when you're like really dialed in and firing on all cylinders now? It feels good. It feels good. I feel good too. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I just feel like I have to police when it's tipping into filling up all the buckets. There is place in my head and in my life to fill up accomplishment buckets. I don't want to get rid of those, but it's like when I start leaning on those I did it when I relapsed. I was like, I'm relapsing, but everything in my life's going good. Like here are all the things I would evaluate my life and they're all doing well. So this isn't the problem I feared it was. I think that's what I have to watch myself for. Yeah, we're like bubbling pots of water and like we thrive when they're like jolly bubbling, but not like completely. A full roar. Yeah, exactly. The incessant obsession with accomplishments and work and like you said you were training for the olympics and making a movie is a mania it is manic like i have experienced it too where i get in these modes and i'm like oh i've i've gone into a little bit of a manic zone and it is in a lot of ways euphoric yeah it gives you a pleasure that's 
in retrospect, not great because it's a high that's untenable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That will lead to a crash at some point. It just is the balance of life. Yeah. And I think that if we dream chasers, like let's just say the Olympics is one type of dream, but if any dream chaser or goal chaser was aware that there was like a chapter after the dream is either accomplished or realized that you're meant to feel or meant to recover, then this whole thing could be very avoidable. And the truth is that nobody, for the Olympics, for example, nobody talks about the moment after with you because then you might not get there in the first place. Mm. And so I don't even know that the mania or the lead up is such an unhealthy or unusual or even avoidable thing so much as I wish that I had somehow been prepared to embrace the moment after. And I know we haven't even talked about the moment itself, but that is just what I'll say is that like, there was no preparation for that. Well, I guess that's kind of the thing I wanted to say at some point in this, which is I think it could sound often like I'm saying, don't bother trying to become an actor because blah, blah, blah. That's not what I'm saying. Or don't become a, an Olympian. No one should try to yes. do anything. No, I'm saying definitely try to do all that, but be realistic about what it's going to accomplish. It's not going to give you an emotional state you desire. That's really the only thing I'm saying is just like, do that, become the biggest director in the world, but also know you will look in the mirror and feel the exact same way you did before you were the biggest director in the world. Yes, exactly. And and I do think that the post-Olympic depression can get a bad name and people, they talk about the Olympics being the problem, but it's really just like, I should have been prepared as like a 12 year old to slowly begin to manage what that would have been like. So I agree with you. The goals are not the problem. The dreams are not the problem and they are not the thing that should be getting the bad name. It's just the approach. It's almost the love addiction. Like when you learn about love addiction and how people ride that high, I think our dreams can be a form of love addiction because we fill in what our lives will be like. And we paint this fantasy, which is just a fantasy and I think for love addicts, another human's going to give them that. And for maybe dream chasers, it's the dream's going to give them that. And it's really just the real erroneous thought is just that anything's going to give you that. Yeah. And we eventually learn that like the best thing to chase is like trying your best rather than being the best. And that's what now I have like more satisfaction about. Well, you go to Rio, you compete for our country, for the mother homeland, You'll have to adjust that. I compete for Greece. Oh, <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. okay. So that's okay. I'm glad that came up. I'm dual citizen. I'm Greek American. So I'm a European American and that's by birth on my dad's side. And while I am one of the fastest 10 K runners in the U S I made the choice to compete for Greece for a number of reasons but going to the Olympics and going to the Olympics as a Greek is so, so fun because it's where yeah. it all began. Yeah, y'all invented it. You enter opening ceremonies first. Like when I go over there and train, which I've done for these stints, like girls look at me and they ask like, why do I look the way I look? And they're talking about like guns, guns yeah. <laughs> and my muscles. And it's been a different experience, but I loved it and I broke the national record there. So like 
The Olympics is that role model you've looked up to your whole life, right? And you build them up and you hope that they're going to be whatever you hope that they'll be if you ever get to meet them. And for some people, it's not. Like my Olympic coach, his Olympic experience was not everything he wanted. He was like injured. The truth is that the United States team had them stay out of the village. And for me, that was one of the reasons why I competed for Greece is like, I was staying in the village for a month. We were training with all the other athletes. I had the real, Oh, it wow. felt like summer camp. amazing summer camp. Just like I would go to the dining hall alone and the dining hall is this, like, it's the size of uh, a one and a half football fields and it's open 24 hours a day and, and people are in their uniforms because you have to wear your uniform all the time. And it's like being in a Wes Anderson movie <laughs> and <laughs> It's the best people watching in the world. And it's also the most exclusive place in terms of emotion where athletes are decompressed in a way that they're not when you see them on these interviews before their competition. Yeah. Were you already with your husband? Yes. I, well, oh. I was engaged. Oh. I know. But Olympic Dreams, the movie we made with Nick Kroll that we brought to South by and we shot at the Winter Olympics was inspired by... My experience getting asked out by a doctor at the Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> so it happens. Not Bolt. He didn't ask you out. A doctor asked you out. No, but Bolt was, I remember he was like, he would be on his balcony with all of his medals blasting <laughs> like music. <laughs> and Yes. It was great. But you also saw people like Phelps in the dining hall put up just like, not looking the happiest, like maybe he was focused, but also maybe what we see on the outside is not how everybody feels on the inside. And that's when I realized that the Olympics is like a process. It's not just an event. And we see it on TV and we think it's this event. And for the athletes though, we're so evolved physically, but mentally we're like delayed at best. Yeah, you've been missing out on virtually every other thing. Well, and the Phelps thing is now well documented by his own documentary. Like, yeah, he was not happy. Right. You don't even have to speculate. Yeah, he was struggling. But that wasn't super public then. But I think yeah. if you were in the village and you saw that scene, you might understand it more now. Yeah. Was he eating like 600 pancakes as advertised? <laughs> Absolutely. That, he's not alive. <laughs> oh, my God. I would love to witness him eat breakfast one time. I know. I would love to have breakfast with him. I would, too. We'd, we'd feel so tiny because we'd only have like five pancakes. Yeah, if. <laughs> if. If. Yeah. You both would probably really love like just the experience of being in the dining hall because then you get to see what everybody's oh. rituals are. You're like... And, and to guess, like, what sport are they? What sport are they? And I think you know, of myself as an expert in this. I feel like I can look at the shape and go, that's a sprinter. That's a volleyball player. That's a long distance runner. The swimmers, they have the most upside down triangle bot. Like, yes. It, yeah. But then what about a sailor? Like, so there was a 60 year old sailor. Oh my God. Oh my, oh. I can't believe you just said that. This is the biggest ding ding of our life. We watched the college admissions scandal uh, Netflix thing. One of the guys that got in trouble was a Stanford sailing coach. And she goes, they have sailing at Stanford. And I go, yeah, I think it was in the Olympics. She goes, I, it can't be in the Olympics. And then we had this whole debate yesterday. Like what our conclusion was is I was like, I don't know that it is, 
But if it was, I wouldn't be shocked and Monica would be shocked. And then you just said this. I can't believe you just said that. <laughs> so I've met both the youngest Olympian and the oldest Olympians at my games. And the oldest Olympian was a sailor. And I had a meal with him and he was like, I think he was, I want to say Italian, but I don't want to say the wrong country. So he was saying how wisdom is so important with sailing because the more years you accumulate of knowing waves and knowing wind, the better you are. And so it's almost the opposite of a gymnastics uh -huh. in terms of the age. I mean, of course, there are younger sailors, but he was by all rights in the Olympic Village, had earned his spot. Wow. What was he in his 50s, 40s? No, I think he was like 60, but I'm, oh, I'm afraid yeah. you're going to like Google it and be like, he was 38, but he was not 38. I'm not afraid of anything. I'm now starting to consider that I may still end up an Olympian. Oh, you definitely can. <laughs> you would be so bad at sailing. Why? Because it's so boring. You just wouldn't want to do all the tedious tasks. No, I want an engine. I want a yeah, gas exactly. pedal and a so steering wheel and an engine. Sailing. Yeah. What is sailing? Is, is it a one man boat? One woman boat? You're asking me all the wrong <laughs> yeah. questions that I know none of the answers to. We'll address it I in don't the fact know. check. I'll find out all what about What if come sailing. to find out the guy you met really just, he had sailed the team to the Olympics. <laughs> like he was the Italian team sailor and he took everyone to Rio on a multi-mass ship. Or if he was just like a coach that was just completely lying. Because there are a few coaches that get to be in the village. Not every coach, but a few get to be in there. What decides that? You know, I think that there are like every country gets head coaches for certain sports. Like my coach was not in the village, but every country also gets six passes a day for people to visit. <gasps> and that's where also being from Greece was really helpful because if you're from the U.S., Phelps is going to get those passes mm. or the vice president of the United States. And there's only six a day. And so I got to bring my dad uh, into the village. Oh. And I cannot tell you, like, you know, my dad's like a Giants baseball season ticket holder. He's like a, the biggest sports fan of all time. And he just kind of reminds me of Kermit the Frog. And, like, his eyes have never oh. been so big. So oh. that was the best. Kermit's my favorite person to compare people oh. to. I love all people I think look like Kermit the Frog. He looks like a cross between Kermit and Bill Gates. Oh, which is oh really weird. Well, um, <laughs> do you speak Greek? I speak enough Greek to have teammates to be there. So I actually got stuck in Greece for five months at the beginning of the pandemic, really unexpectedly because of the pandemic. And that's where I learned the most Greek that uh, I've learned. Uh -huh. I was living in a college town and was supposed to race. And then the Olympics got pushed and everything got shut down and stayed there for five months. And so I needed to learn how to like fix my laptop when it broke and like do <laughs> right, all that. Right. Okay. So your experience sounds like it was really, really great. Yes. It was everything. Did you have any depression about like not getting a gold medal or anything like that? For me, no, because okay. I ran faster than I'd ever run. I broke a national record. I was also in a race that broke the world record and 80% of the race broke national records. So it was like the fastest, fastest. 10K that's ever happened in the wow. history of the world. You were what, like 31, 36 or something? That's exactly it. That is unreal, Monica. 6.2 miles. In, yeah. 31, in 31 minutes. minutes. Every mile is a five minute mile. Wow. For fucking 6.2 miles. Wow. That's amazing. Girl, 
I really can't wrap my head I around know, that. Me either. I you must not be a hypochondriac, because I would definitely be like, my heart is giving out. Or do you like the feeling of that? <laughs> well, first of all, if you have a really good coach, you feel like you could go to the edge. And this is the other thing that when we talk about the mental or physical health, I'm not great at self-regulating, but if you have a coach who can hold you back when they need to, and then know that when they let you go, you'll just try your best. So I had a coach who piqued me. So athletes are like pencils. I mean, people are like pencils where you can sharpen yourself and mostly you want to be like a dull, strong pencil, but every once in a while you <laughs> want to like really sharpen the pencil and that's the Olympics, uh. right? You want to be peaked. Mm. And if they time it right, then you're ready to do whatever your mind wants your body to do wow. and it will do whatever you tell it. Oh boy. Like somehow that's all funneling into like, there's something, what? there's something erotic about that. Why? Like yeah. you're at peak, oh, you're boy. in total control. Peak. Maybe it was the word oh, peak. Jesus. Yeah. Cause it sounds like PQ. <laughs> that's why so many like children are conceived at the Olympics. Like that mm. is because people are at, at their, their peak. peak. At yeah, their, right? They're at their peak emotionally, physically, there's highs, there's lows. Like there's no more wild, extreme place than that. Dopamine is a waterfall at that point for everyone. Yeah. There are kids conceived at the Olympics. I didn't even think about that. So of course. Yeah. Because wow. people time their children around these Olympic cycles too. Like if you want to uh, do more than one cycle, some people will like have a child right after. So this makes sense. Yes, so wow. they'll be ready to return. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yep. Okay. So you return home. When does it start? When does that crash hit? So my understanding of situational depression is that it's kind of begins as like a, an adrenal fatigue. Like it's a nervous system challenge at first. And for me, the moment after is probably the moment when someone should have sat me down and told me that like, regardless of how I feel, I need to slow down and not make decisions about my future. Uh, like slow down, meaning take a body rest, but also take a mental rest for like a month or two. Oh, and the wow. truth is that I wish someone had done that, but the truth was that people were like, celebrate, like go fun. And it was kind of up to me. And so I kind of took a physical break, but I also didn't take a long enough physical break. But the more important thing was that my mind knew for the last four years and probably for the previous 26 years of my life that I had a goal. And I never thought past the Olympics about what that goal was. And as soon as it was over, I wanted to know what the next thing was. And I wanted to know yesterday. And I wanted to make sure that I was doing it. Yeah. So the truth is that it, it didn't start as the sad feelings or anything like that. It started as almost uh, speeding up a car, like being like, let's keep going on this momentum. And it just went so well. And then I made a series of changes in my life that I think I should have paused. So my coach, in so many words, was no longer going to be coaching. He didn't want to keep coaching because he was an Olympian himself. And it's a very challenging lifestyle. So he suggested that I move to the place where people train at altitude at Mammoth Lakes, which is where I had done camps. But he was like, why don't you move there and become a marathoner? So I switched events, tried to move wow. up to the marathon, switched coaches, switched where I lived, moved to altitude, which is known to actually have challenging effects on your mental health a little bit. Like it can be hard. 
And then I was in sponsor negotiations, which Olympians often go through sponsor negotiations after an Olympic cycle, and it sucks. <laughs> it's just really stressful. And so I did all of these things at once, and I stopped sleeping. And so that was the first real bad symptom for me was that I was sleeping like an hour a night when I normally slept nine or ten easily. Mm. And I I started training again. I was running 120 miles in a week with one hour of sleep, which is oh. like obviously stupid. Like I will admit this was not smart, but I thought that I needed to put things together for myself in this new life. Well, again, this is where we go back to what I said way, way earlier is that you have the predictable pattern in your life is you push past the discomfort and then you receive a reward. Yes, so, exactly. yeah, your muscle memory is like, yeah, this sucks, as it should. Something great's going to happen. Exactly. I'm a really good coach's athlete. Or if I'm on set, like, I'm good at being a part of these teams. But if it's me coaching me or me directing me, I don't think it works as well. Mm. And so because no one – and I'm not blaming anyone else. It's just there was no dialogue around this. And also, at the same time – the world is asking you what's next. That's all you get asked after a big peak. And even when I released the book Bravey, that was a kind of Olympics. And I got asked a lot, like, what's next? And I get that. I can't blame the media for having that question so ingrained in them. But I wanted to answer what's next because I knew I would be asked. I'm always asked. And then the way the world saw me was someone who just ran a national record, like did this amazing thing. And so I felt insanely at odds with the way I felt and the way the world saw me. So I began to like panic a little bit because I knew that I was feeling more and more out of control. And then the world was seeing me as this like example of control. Yeah. And so I stopped sleeping, but I kept pursuing trying to figure out all this new event, new sponsor, and I got injured. And this was the first injury of my life. Then I felt even more out of control. What was the injury? It was a hamstring tear. And that most definitely was due to training. That's a overuse thing because I wasn't sleeping and running. Yeah, you weren't ever repairing. Yeah, it makes total sense. And then it wasn't until my dad like heard me on the phone and he could hear some of the red flags that he and my brother made me get help. And they made me get help by scheduling appointments for me that I didn't want to have. Mm. And I had to go back to Eugene, Oregon, because Mammoth didn't even have mental health in person. It was all telemedicine. And I know during a pandemic, it's a lot of telemedicine. But at that time, and in my condition, I needed to be in person with someone. And so I sat down with this doctor, finally, and he was, well, first I met this other woman who you're supposed to try to meet more than one mental health doctor, I think. I don't know if you had that yeah. experience. Yeah, yes, that is advised. So the first woman I saw, I was really honest with her. Like, I'm never lying about symptoms, but she sat me down and she was like, okay, you are like about to kill yourself and we need to put you on like a ton of drugs and then you need to find a psychologist because I'm a psychiatrist to deal with you. And I left feeling like really helpless because I don't know. I was like, okay, I'm going to be sedated and right. then I have to find the other help. And at that time it was really hard to find mental health support. And then it was like this 
bizarre situation with coaches where they're like, okay, take care of yourself. But like no one yeah. took it on like what it was. Like, like is- go deal with your period basically. Like, yeah, go do that thing. I don't really want to hear about it, but you should do it. Yes. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. Just come back when you're ready. But like never treating it like what it was, which was an injury. If it was an injury, which is what my doctor that I did work with eventually told me, it would have been a completely different game, just like you said, Dax, earlier. So this guy, Dr. Arpea, he wore like gas station t-shirts, you know, the kind with like a big hawk on it. Yeah, yeah. Just like very kind type. And he very simply told me, you have an injury to your brain. And it is like when you're rollerblading and you fall down, you have a scratch on your brain and your brain can get injured just like any other body part and it can heal just like any other body part. It just takes time. And suddenly I completely shifted because suddenly the whole narrative that I was fed about my mom, which was this nebulous, like, if you feel these things, you might have to die and go. And mind you, like her brother took his own life. Her mom was also kind of Mm. had some issues. So it wasn't like she was an anomaly. It was like, this stuff runs deep. So when I was told that, I was suddenly like, oh, like I know how to deal with my body. And I refocused my goal and he became my coach. Uh-huh. And how long would you say, I don't know what metric we'd assign, but let's say at the Olympics you were a 10 and then on an hour of sleep, you'd probably gone down to a one. How long working with him before you felt like you were a five or a six? I would say... And he prepared me for this slow progress because he told me that actions change first, then thoughts, then feelings in that order only. Yeah. And much like when you have a broken leg, you're going to be in pain every day and it doesn't mean you're not healing. It just, this is normal. Pay attention to your actions, whatever that is, sleep, bone broth, whatever you do for your broken bones. And so it took me, I think I started seeing him in, April, March, April. And I think I started feeling differently in July. So Mm. it took a few, a few months, pretty like, I think relatively quick, but those few months I approached drastically different than the three months that I didn't get help prior to meeting him. Yeah. I love his paradigm. We say that on here a lot that you can act your way into thinking differently, but you cannot think your way into acting differently. Yeah, that's the same. I mean, it's the same thing. Yeah, it feels counterintuitive almost, but it's like, yeah, if you take these actions and have some patience, you might be surprised with how you feel and how you think. Can you tell us, and you don't have to, you can tell us right now if you don't want to. I'll tell you anything. (laughs) What were some of the red flags that your dad and brother picked up on that you weren't picking up on? Yes. So the sleep, but also just the comments about, I thought I knew my future. So I said, my life, I have peaked Mm. (laughs) and I had my chance at life because I think I always grew up feeling like I was going to get certain chances, but I wasn't going to get two of the same chance, whatever that meant. It was arbitrary. And if I messed up any one of those, like, just like we talk about the rungs on the ladder, that I would fall Mm -hmm. and that I was lucky, but I wasn't that lucky. And 
So I told them that my future was like never going to be better than what I had. And I think anytime we think we know our future, it's like a red flag that we're not well because we don't. Well, that's a great one. Yeah. I like that. When we think we know our future. Like when we've decided it's going to be a certain way, we're not well because that's impossible. And also when we want to go back in time. So I was trying to recreate the circumstances that I had prior to the Olympics. So I tried to like get back with my old coach, even though he didn't want to coach anymore. I tried (laughs) to move into the house that I left in Eugene. Like I tried to recreate my life before because I thought that I had messed everything up Mm. in and that I and needed you had to, go to go to basics, back, back to basics. You were trying basics. to control, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so those were things that they heard that didn't feel healthy. Good for them. Yeah, it's like the things that got you here may no longer serve you. And I think that a lot of Olympians or high-achieving people or people with trauma have a certain point in their life where they realize, or they don't, and <laughs> they're driven by it their whole life, but we realize that the things that got us here maybe were useful and potent, but they no longer serve us. Totally agree. And in fact, they will limit us. Yeah. And that's the real threat is when you're like, oh, wow, this is actually like doing the opposite. Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert, if you dare. We are supported by StoryWorth. If there's ever been a year to make the moms in your life feel loved and appreciated on Mother's Day, this is the one. That is why I am honoring my wife and mother of my children with a heartfelt, sentimental gift the whole family can cherish together forever. StoryWorth is an online service that helps your mom, grandmother, mother-in-law, and every mother figure in your life share stories through thought-provoking questions about their memories and personal thoughts. It's a fun new way to engage with them, especially if you can't be together in person. Every week, StoryWorth emails your mom a different story prompt, questions you've never thought to ask, like, what is some of the best advice your mother ever gave to you and if you could choose any talents to have what would they be story worth has helped numerous families learn about each other in profound special ways and their testimonials will practically move you to tears give your mom the most meaningful gift this mother's day with story worth get started right away with no shipping required by going to storyworth.com armchair you'll get ten dollars off your first purchase that's storyworth.com armchair for ten dollars off Storyworth.com slash armchair. Yeah, in my case, it was like, oh, the thing that got you into the party is also going to get you kicked out of the party. Like, I'm too much. I'm very provocative and I'm wild. And I'm the, and like, it got me there. I was interesting for a minute, but then I was like, oh, (laughs) but this is also going to get me kicked out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's so funny. I have like the twee examples of things you had because I'm like, yes. And I used to collect notebooks and backpacks thinking (laughs) that those were the things that I would need to get to like my own writer's room. And in fact, if I had so many backpacks and notebooks, I would live in a house of clutter and I wouldn't get to the writer's room because I'm living in a a house full of stuff. You're buried. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that I actually did and my dad was a hoarder so that was his response to everything but that was a whole other story he collected newspapers oh Oh, wow yeah that's pretty (laughs) that's like 
when you are going to do a cartoon, yeah, yes, yeah. like when you, if you're going to do a cartoon character of a hoarder, you're going to fucking put so many newspapers in that. <laughs> yeah. Well, but aren't there also some useful things you get? Like, okay, the one I think really useful tool from this whole thing was feeling unashamedly like I could reach out for, I call it in Bravey, like my mentor buffet of like, okay, I don't get this one keystone mentor in a mother that some people have. And maybe for some people it's very challenging and not positive, but either way, I don't have it, but I get to have everybody else. And that was my feeling of special. And I was really shameless about seeking out mentorship in a way that was reaching for it rather than just waiting for it. And I think that's a muscle that I'm not sorry that I have and that I have tried to not let wear off. So maybe there are some positives. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And that is very hard for me because I have to admit I don't know everything and that this person has something they know that I don't, that I want. So it's like, it's, it's very hard for me to be vulnerable in that way. But like you said, there is some gift. I didn't have the dad I wanted. But I found one, Tom Hansen, this guy I just worship and I take all my cues from in life and I got to pick one. You don't get to pick one normally. Because you could also go about the world saying this thing got taken away from me, whether it's your dad, my mom or whatever anyone else has had happen to them and think, and the world is going to keep taking things from me. And sure enough, it will, because you will see it that way. And I think we can see it the opposite way. Yeah. Back to what you were saying, but there are positive things. All the negative traits have a positive head to its tail. And I think you just have to recognize the strength and try to maximize that while acknowledging that there's a negative side to it. And I also just think in general, it's a good reminder to not get so married to your narrative Mm. and be flexible Mm. and be able to say like, that served me at one point and no longer does. I can let it go or... When we did Monica and Jess, we had Esther Perel on and she like she said the best thing that I think about all the time that there's a goblin living on your shoulder and it helped you. It was there to protect you, but you don't need it anymore and you can tell it, thank you so much for helping me and for serving me and you can go on now to somebody else. I'm I'm good. But you have to be sort of aware that like that's no longer my narrative because we're all like this is me. This is my identity. This is this. Yeah. We get stuck. And I think it's important to be like, no, we're evolving. Yes, we're all like actually these Pokémon. Like we level up and then we don't go back. I don't know that game well, but I don't think they <laughs> They don't devolve, right? You just think, told me Everything I know about it yeah. now has been what that sentence you just said is now the most I've ever known. We're about not it. experts on Pokemon either. <laughs> but then, and visualizing yourself leveling up and being like, I am no longer that person that I was. I am now the the evolved one. Yeah. And maybe what we get to do is have those pauses every now and then where we're like, now I'm leveling up whenever those moments come in relationships too. Did you find when you wrote Bravey? Did it have this neat effect? I've had this experience where I don't actually understand something and then I write about it. And then in writing about it, I start to understand it, which is bizarre because I'm the author of it. But did you have that experience where you kind of maybe understood the whole experience even more profoundly after putting it down on paper? Yeah. So when I wrote the proposal, I mentioned nothing about my own depression at all because I was going through it when I wrote the proposal and I was too embarrassed about depression when I was in it. I wrote the proposal when I was like sick and didn't understand things. And writing the book proposal was like one 
grasping at straws to get a hold of my future, to be honest. Well, you said you had a bunch of big ideas that were happening in the wake of all that. I'm going to do this yeah. and do that and do this. A million things. I do think writing helps because it's one thing to have an experience and it's another thing to be able to describe it in a way that translates to people. And and a memoir is not a diary. Like it's not meant for yourself. You know that there are people that are going to read it. And I think that's a different type of writing. And it's it's finding the right words that people will like be able to visualize. And I think one of the biggest things I learned was, I think it was two things. One, the thing you talked about, about your identity not being what you do. Because when I first started training for the Olympics and trying to make movies, I really separated those narratives for myself because I wanted to be taken seriously as a world-class runner and as a great award-winning actor and filmmaker separately because I knew that I didn't want an excuse like she's an okay runner who can act or she's a makes decent movies but she can run and that was in my own head but at this point I think the book was all of the things in one and I wanted to be able to communicate in a way that made it okay for myself that I was all the things that I am and I actually remember a conversation with Rachel Dratch, who is like a mentor and act in one of our movies. And I had a conversation with her where I was like, wait a minute, if I put this book out that talks a lot about depression, am I going to preclude myself from a future in like comedy or in acting? Because this is such a intensely mental health driven narrative. You didn't want your identity and your public identity to be depression. Yeah. And it was described like my identity in the book is like someone described it as like, I'm a kind knife. And I'm like, that sounds a little different than like what I might want to be doing in my future. And she was like, first of all, comedians are some of the saddest people on earth. And second of all, it's all leading you where you're going. And advice from people that I admire helps me a lot. Mm. So if, if someone says it and it's my Olympic coach or it's Rachel Dratch or it's Richard Linklater, that means something different than if my dad said it, as much as I love my dad. Yeah. I don't know how you feel about, like it matters who it comes from and you can't control that it means something different coming from different people. I would say there was a long period where it did and I would say mostly no. For me now, I think even the people I admire can advise you how to do what they did. Yeah. And I don't think you're trying to do something anyone else did. And I don't ultimately think I'm trying to do something anyone else did. The simplest thing I'll remember, you know, like I ran into Adam Sandler and he's like, hey, buddy, you got pretty ripped for that movie. And I go, oh, yeah, thanks. And he goes, yeah, you know, comedians shouldn't be in shape. And he's right. But as it turns out, I wasn't supposed to become Will Ferrell. I just kept doing what yeah. I do. I like working out. All right, well, I'd rather just do what I do and then figure out where that fits than like listen to that advice and be something I'm not. Okay, that is really, really helpful advice for me because my world is transitioning. Like I'm still, I am an athlete, but we're more and more in the arts and yeah. like in the performing space. And I think before... The book came out, I thought that I would need to like have a sharp line of transition. And I thought that I would need to somehow shed completely eventually this pretty unsheddable title of an Olympian that like you can't shed that and you don't want to. Yeah. And I think what I'm learning is that hopefully, and I think meeting you and talking to you about this and hearing that is tremendously, it's like an intangible gift of 
permission to have confidence in taking it all with you. Yeah, because again, I just want to reiterate, it was great advice. It is probably objectively true. But yeah. if I had changed who I am per that advice, I just wouldn't have ended up doing whatever the fuck it is I'm now doing. But I'm happy to be doing whatever this thing is I'm now doing. Yeah, that's great to hear. I like you. Me too. I'm really glad we got to talk to you. Bravey, Chasing Dreams, Befriending Pain, and Other Big Ideas is out now. I think everyone should buy it and read it. I think what's always interesting is your story, which on the surface would seem completely unrelatable. is like, what, we're sitting here right now and I feel like I've gone through very, very similar things as you. And I know Monica quite well. And I know she's gone through very similar things as you. And it's interesting. Yeah. The more specific you get, weirdly, the more universal it is, which makes no sense, but is the truth. Right. The headline's completely ununiversal. You're an Olympian. Okay. Well. Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, as I learn more and more and more and more and more, it just gets down to like the granular thing that's very human. Yeah. That means so much to me. And I think Maya Rudolph wrote the foreword for the book. I think she captured just that, that like we expect these people to be a certain thing and they are and they aren't. I am and I'm not. <laughs> There's got to be a take on them. I am what I am from Popeye, which is I am what I'm not. Or I, I don't know. I'll work on it. I'll workshop it. And I'll, I'll try to get it into a digestible saying. Alexi, so great meeting you and ton of luck with the book and everything else you're doing. Thank you. Yeah, I'm very excited and super grateful to meet you and good luck healing your arm. It'll it's going to be great. And Monica, thank you as well. Thank you. All right. Talk to you later. Talk soon. Bye. And now my favorite part of the show, the fact check with my soulmate, Monica Padman. Hello. From great heights come great falls. I just made up that slogan. That was great. Thank you. I think you also made up a slogan during our episode. <laughs> I did? According to Laura's facts. Oh. Because well, um, uh -oh. she said, did you guys workshop that phrase, quote, I am what I am not? <laughs> <laughs> so I think maybe that came up and then we said we need to workshop that. Like to figure out what it means? Yeah. To okay. come up with maybe a, a more succinct. I love that. I am what I am not. Doesn't make any sense. No. Well. Does it? It does. Okay, how? Because you could either, like, let's put it this way. Uh, in physics, right, if you want to know the volume of an object, you can put it in water and see how much it displaces. Sure. Right? So in that way, you can learn. If you know everything something is not, you can kind of know what it is. Okay, so you so can I'm be defined by what you're not, not what you are. Although right, that's like, not what you, you don't like that. Well, I don't like defining yourself on things you hate. Right. That's my big pet peeve. But I'm not under 6'2". Yep. I'm not brown. Mm -hmm. I'm not not dyslexic. No, 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 no. Why, 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 You know, you could put together, you could, you are also what you're not. That's true. I do think it's counterproductive to what we. Yeah, we say define yourself by the actions you yeah, and the things you're connected to and that you're connected to others by. Yeah, I, I agree. Wow. Well, I think those we are two it. different things, though. Like, one is a description of a human, the other is your identity. You know, I, I'm always, I'm, um, I'm sensitive to this when people, anytime I'm talking to somebody 
and they say more than once, I'm the kind of person that blank. Mm -hmm. Something about that phrase I don't trust. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Do you hear it in others at all? Uh, I hear, yeah. Like, look, I'm the kind of person that never talks shit. You're thrown by that phrase, but I th- it's not that you don't make those statements or that I don't. Look at I'm I'm almost guilty of everything I dislike. I'm never yeah. saying that I don't do these things. I'm saying like there are things that I don't like in myself and I notice them in other people. Well, when I point that out, I'm just pointing it out to say maybe it shouldn't bother you so much because clearly we all do it. And so if you're doing it, what is it about it that's bothering Well, what bothers me is that if you have to declare who you are, odds are you're not just doing that thing and people would observe it. Like you don't need to declare who you are. People know who you are through your actions and through your character. So I'm always a little suspicious when people are always declaring who they are out loud. It makes me think, well, no, that's who you want to be. If you were that person, you wouldn't need to declare it all the time. Obama doesn't say like, I'm the type of person who takes education really serious. Well, unless he's talking about it to somebody who doesn't know him and speaking on that topic, then maybe he would say that, like, education's really important to me. I'm talking like an interpersonal conversation with two people and the other person keeps declaring what they are. Yeah. I, I, it's a little bit of a red flag for me. Okay. Just in your real life, you know, maybe when it happens, just notice it. Okay. See what you think about it. Because maybe you're just not even noticing it. And maybe if you notice it, you'll feel the way I do. Or maybe you won't. I think I'd rather not be turned on to something that is going to make me not like a person. Yeah, it's not even (laughs) complete to say that it makes me not like them. It's just this thing that I've... It's It's a pet peeve. No, you know what it is? It's like when... When Bradley said, when someone's talking shit about another person, to me, it's telling me more about that person than the person they're talking shit sure, about. Sure, of course. And that's just a really astute observation. So when it's happening, that that now rattles in my head. Like, oh, yeah, this is one of these times where it's like, I'm actually learning more about you than I am mm, this person. That you- makes sense. But I think for me, what it tells is you're a person who's attached to your narrative and your identity. When you're someone who says, well, I'm a person who does this or I'm this or I'm like when you're really rigid in that Mm -hmm. is when you start presenting it to others. I think that's what it tells me. You're really attached to this part of you. That's true. I will say it's only a mild step away from someone referring to themselves in the third person, which you would agree dislike. Well, I've I've never really experienced that. Well, let's just... Oh, no. That was a... You should have looked at the light. I should have. Everyone should look at the light when they have to sneeze. It makes the sneeze come out. But the conundrum I was in is that to look at the light, I would have sneezed directly into the microphone. I was trying to get my mouth far, farthest away from the microphone and not not blow your ears out. Okay, so let's just role play this because you'll you'll be able to tell really quick whether you like this or not. Okay. Dax never sneezes directly into the mic. Dax always (laughs) turns his head. Okay. Because Dax is polite. That is... It's gross. No one does that. Yes, people talk in the third person. Who? Do you really, really know someone who's done that we for real? Watched. Yeah, it happens. Okay. I mean, I and think it's that's... generally someone who thinks of themselves a little too important. Sure. I mean, that yeah. is not normal. <laughs> it's not normal. There's even a Seinfeld episode about it. People do it. No, it's like funny. It's like mm-hmm. this funny thing in the zeitgeist but have i ever really heard someone do it no oh okay i have a bunch of times but anyways it feels like a cousin or adjacent to that to say like i'm the type of person feels a little bit like dax doesn't play Mm -hmm. (laughs) i don't know again 
I'm not in none of these cases. Am I saying I don't do these things? Well, I but when hope I do, you I don't. do a lot of things though. That after I do, I'm like, oh, that was gross. I hope you don't talk about yourself in the third person. I don't. Okay. Dex never does that. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> Monica doesn't like that. Dex is always first person. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, why did we get on this topic? Well, either regardless. Oh, I am what I'm not. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, we solved that. Yeah. It might not be the most efficient way, but it can be done is all I'm saying. <laughs> I got to update everyone on my pet peeve. Oh. Have I already talked about it on here? About walking on the sidewalk? I don't think I have. Mm, tell me. Oh, wow. This is my ego. Okay, now this is la- oh. our, this is layered. This has oh, okay. now gotten really layered. Okay, so <laughs> I I've always had this pet peeve. And I've been realizing it, it, it's resurfaced lately, which is when you are running on the sidewalk and people do not move. They don't accommodate. I'm running on the edge, sure. on the edge of the sidewalk. I'm taking a v- up a very tiny amount of space mm-hmm. and I'm running. Yeah. I'm doing the hard thing. Sure. And people are walking towards me in like a group or like two people Mm -hmm. and they're taking up the entire width of the sidewalk and they're not adjusting. And it makes me so irrationally irritated. Yeah. And also let's add dogs into the mix. Yeah. I mean, no one wants to move their dog. Sure. And, you know. Well, because they're a rescue. Who rescued who? (laughs) Exactly. Dax rescued (laughs) Um, so I hate that Mm. and (laughs) it makes me really irritated. And one time years ago, I was behind someone and they were, they had their headphones in, they're walking their dog. I was running behind them and I was like for a while behind them to have them look at me and move their dog. And and she didn't notice me. So I ran around, I ran on the grass around and the dog jumped up and bit me on the side of my stomach. Mm -hmm. Broke skin, went through the shirt. Did you get a rabies shot after that? No. You might be rabid. Maybe that's your fiery side. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, me either. (laughs) So she took her headphones out and was like, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. Baxter's a rescue and he gets scared easy because he's been a lot of trauma. I was not happy. Watch (laughs) out for people who are walking by you. Anyway, so this is a huge, huge pet peeve of mine. Now the layer is, I thought I had already talked about this on the podcast. Mm -hmm. And since I've been running and I've noticed some people moving. Oh, and you got it in your head that they had heard. A few of them (laughs) I thought... First of all, they knew you. And then secondly, they've heard. <laughs> I didn't think for sure, but I wonder. Sure, like, it's, oh, a, it's a possibility. I wonder if that person. Well, that reminds me of the great. Well, no, I don't want to hijack this, but it just reminds me of the Howard Stern thing where he like loved this instructor on Peloton. He only takes her classes. But one thing he hates is that she would tell these stories about trips she went on or something of this order. Mm-hmm. And he would talk about her all the time on the show because he's always on the Peloton. And, oh, it's a great workout. Man, did she go on about the thing, right? Yeah, you got to be He careful. signed on and she stopped doing it. Oh. And then he realized like, oh, fuck. Like, it I don't think. Of course it got back to her. Yep. 
And of course she's flattered Howard takes her class and then she changed her personality and then he felt terrible and then he wanted her to go back (laughs) even though he hates it. (laughs) And I just thought this is the funniest. It's almost like a sitcom episode. How could this happen? Oh, no. (laughs) So what I like about your pet peeve is that it does reinforce my thought that like nothing is innately annoying. It's really just whatever your thing is personally. So I... used to run on Los Feliz Boulevard all the time. And I actually prefer to run the grass because it's easier on my knees. So like I see people come in and I like get over super early to let them know, like, don't even sweat it. I'm going to go on the grass. Why wouldn't you just always run on the grass then if you preferred it? Well, because quite often there's driveways and sometimes it's it's worth it to commit to this strip of grass. But if the strip of grass is only like, you know, 100 feet long, I won't do that because then I think it's worse switching back and forth from concrete to, <laughs> to grass. Mix. But if I can do like a good quarter mile on the grass, I'll do it. Okay. But anyway, I don't mind going on the grass at all. Okay. And I am thinking like, oh, I'm coming really fast and they're kind of going slow. Um, what? No. If you're going fast, you're the one working hard. It's very easy for them to step to the, and no one's saying get off the sidewalk. I'm not saying. Well, I could see where they're like, the sidewalk is for walking. It's not for running. These weren't built so people could run. This isn't a track. So I'm doing the thing this was designed to do, which is walk slowly. And if you were coming at me slowly, I'd have all this time to to get over on the side to let you by. But because you're sprinting down the thing, now I'm now in this position where I've got to react really quick. No, you don't. I'm not chose- like a lightning bolt. You can <laughs> see like me. You can see me from far away. And all it takes is literally one tiny step to the side. If you're walking in the very middle of the sidewalk, yeah. you're doing it wrong. Walk on the right side of the sidewalk. Okay. And the other person will walk on the right side of mm-hmm. the sidewalk or run or whatever. Yeah. And that is how you accommodate everyone. And if you're mm-hmm. walking in a group and you see someone, you have to adjust. Yeah, it annoys you and it doesn't annoy me. I would say that there's a very good chance that most people do move out of the way for you because you're a big guy. People don't move out of the way. I move out. I always preemptively. I don't ever try to run by okay. people walking on the sidewalk. Okay, forget running. Okay. Walking. Mm-hmm. When you're walking down the sidewalk, people are probably noticing you. They're crossing the street. And they're crossing the street. And then I have to whistle for Valdi. Or. (laughs) I'm serious. I know you are, but I'm having fun. Well. (laughs) You want me to get mad with you? I mean, I want you to take this seriously. I do take this serious. I I recognize that this makes you very upset. I'm not telling you not to be. I'm, I'm pointing out that like, so. Within your pet peeve, there is one that we're similar on is I can't stand. I feel like this is more of an L.A. thing than like a Michigan thing is that people in a group are out to lunch. Like if they're in a group, they're they're completely blind to the rest of the world. That's a part of this. Yeah. Yeah. So like they're talking to each other and they don't even consider that other people. So that's one of my pet peeves. Mm. But the um, not moving out of the way for me when I'm running is not a pet peeve of mine. Let me let me pose this to you as just a defense of those people. So if you're walking, it's kind of like driving in the right lane versus the left lane. So if you're walking, you're going to be passed by eightfold the amount of runners as you're going to be passed by people walking. Because I often also walk down Los Feliz Boulevard. Yeah, me too. I also walk on this circle. Yeah, when I'm walking, I get passed by like five runners for every one pedestrian walking down the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. So they might think like, there's so many of them, they're moving so fast, 
And they all seem to move. I move out of the way and all the other runners I see tend to take to the grass really quick. So you kind of get in this habit of they're going to come by a ton, but they're going to move to the side. Uh, if someone's walking at me, that happens less. I'll accommodate and get over. But if you see someone on the same sidewalk as you running towards you mm -hmm. on their side of the sidewalk and you are not on your side of the sidewalk, why wouldn't you move over to your side of the sidewalk? Well, because you two reasons. One, all the runners seem to just run around on the grass. Why do they shouldn't have to? The, whether they should have to or not have to, the in practice, most runners just run on the grass. That's what when I'm walking down the sidewalk, runners are always just before they get to me, they go out on the grass. When I run, I go out on the grass way before I get to people. That's just how we do it. I'm not saying one's right or wrong. But if so, if you're the pattern you've just been exposed to eight times in a row is that runners go out on the grass and then you come along, you might be the anomaly for them. They might be thinking, oh, you're going to go out on the grass. I don't need to move. All these runners go out on the grass. I don't know. I mean, that, it could be that simple. It couldn't, it could not be that they think they're more important than you. I don't know. I, I just, that's not how anyone operates in the car. That's not how anyone operates. You, you, you make room for the other people. You should. I do. If I'm walking and I see someone coming, I make sure I'm not in the very middle of the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. And if I'm standing next to a friend walking and someone's coming, I get behind my friend. Me too. Yeah. That's how you, people should operate mm -hmm. anyway. that's There might though be a fun, because I'm in AA, that would be something that I would work through this. Um, Are you the type of person that- No, no. What do I want to say? Uh, mode? I would work it through this system. Like I would go, oh, I'm getting really upset by this thing. Now I want to run it through this system to figure out what fear of mine's being triggered. Instead of just like hanging your laurels on they're wrong and I'm right, it might be interesting to run that through the diagram of why it affects you. Yeah, I don't like feeling like people aren't taking me into consideration. That's obviously what it is. Yeah. That is happening and that's my issue and people should take other people into consideration. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So both things are happening where I think one thing is societally we should be paying attention to each other mm -hmm. and I don't like not being addressed mm -hmm. or seen as equal. Yeah. So that was fun. Now though. that we're done with the grievance section, <laughs> Alexi, Alexi, very, very fun episode. Yeah. I really dug her. Yeah. When do most female runners, athletes get their periods if they're training really hard? I couldn't really find that okay. a lot of, I mean, obviously there was a lot of info on runners missing their period. That's mm -hmm. common. It's mm -hmm. not very good. To miss your period? Yeah. Okay. No, it's not good when your body is decidedly not having a period because it's- um, Doesn't have the resources to get yeah. pregnant? It's called athletic amenorrhea. 60% oh. of women athletes have amenorrhea. Athletic amenorrhea. Oh my God. Amenorrhea. It's really hard to say. Oh. Amenorrhea. Disturbed menstruation due to the demands of the high intensity training on the body. Mm. Do you know how we, I told you back when we lived in Detroit, if we ate a certain food that gave us diarrhea, we would incorporate the name of the food into the diarrhea. So like oh. I had diarrhea, I had- Because of tacos? Thai food, like oh. Oh, I had too much Thai food, I got diarrhea. 
This could be um, diarrhea induced from M and M's. Amaria. Amenaria. M and Amaria. Oh boy. Okay, so this has to do with estrogen, testosterone, progesterone. They're unable to ovulate and often suffer from certain vitamin deficiencies lower than average intake of antioxidants and lower body mass index. Okay, so it's not good for you to, to your body's working too hard in the other direction to make a period. Make yourself a little period. I'm surprised I'm surprised you're having your period. Cuz I'm, work, yeah, I'm working all your so running, hard. Yeah. yeah. I'm not I'm not running like Olympic levels yet. Yet. You will. <laughs> um, what country was the oldest Olympian sailor from and how old was he? Oh, this will be good. A hundred. Do you want to guess? 51. 54. Ah. Good guess. He won his first Olympic gold medal as the oldest sailor competing in Rio during the NACRA 17 mixed catamaran class on Tuesday, Tuesday, a long time ago. At the sailing regatta. Ooh. He's born in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Ooh. And he started sailing when he was six years old. Oh, my gosh. Buenos Aires. It is funny you take anything even as like um, what is I think supposed to be a very peaceful pursuit. Sailing, harnessing the wind, yeah. gliding along. <laughs> and making it Even making that competitive. I know. Yeah. Like competitive, it sounds like competitive napping. Oh, my God. I could totally win a competitive nap. You couldn't beat Aaron. We're like, it's like a gunshot goes off and you have to be technically asleep. <laughs> How would they know if you were fully asleep? There'd be a machine that was hooked to you and it would know. Could you take any sleep medication? No, no, no. You can't dope. You can't dope in the Olympics. But everyone's doing it. Then you can. Okay. That's all. I'm pro-doping, you know that. <laughs> I want to see how far are. we can go. <laughs> I love you. Love you.